Good morning. This is Darrell Gunter, your host for Leadership with Darrell W. Gunter on WSOU 89.5 FM and streaming on the net at WSOU.net. Well, ladies and gentlemen, put your seatbelts on because we're talking about real murder mystery today on Leadership. Our guest, Mr. John O'Rourke, is the author of The Mystery Millions and Murder in North Jersey. John, welcome to the program. Thank you, Darrell, for having me. Before we, we jump into murder millions and murder, mystery millions and murder in North Jersey, the kidnapping killing of Sidney Riso, who is an Exxon uh, executive, can you share with our audience a little bit about your, your, your background, your education? I know you're a Seton Hall grad, so yes. welcome to a fellow pirate. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. Um, I was a New Jersey State Trooper, started in June of 1985. I did 26 years with that organization. In a variety of, um, I guess, capacity, you can say, uh, mainly in uh, field operations, which is our uniform division. I retired in February of 2011, where I started working as a security consultant um, and uh, director of security for Montclair Golf Club in uh, West Orange. And uh, presently, I am working as a consultant, a senior advisor for Insight Risk management in New York City. Excellent. And if I understand correctly, you, you're really a specialist in regards to helping uh, wealthy folks uh, to stay safe. Correct. Uh, we primarily deal with high-end clientele, mm-hmm. and um, we uh, provide uh, consultation services for high-end clientele and private clubs, uh, if you will, as well. You know, some years ago, I remember the headline of um, the unfortunate death of Mr. Sidney Riso, who was kidnapped and unfortunately uh, died during the, during the whole process. What prompted you to uh, write this book, Mystery, Millions, and Murder in North Jersey? That's a good question. My literary journey, if you will, began as a trooper, uh, Never really envisioned myself being a writer. However, I had a strong desire to pay tribute to the troopers who died in the line of duty. So I set out on that journey to write a book on all the troopers who died in the line of duty. That turned into a two-book project because it was too big for my publisher for one book. So I wrote Jersey Troopers, Sacrifice at the Altar of Public Service, and then the the follow-up book, which was New Jersey State Troopers. Kind of gave me the itch to write again. And since I had broken into the true crime, you know, um, uh, genre, the genre, there you go. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I had a, had a little <clears throat> bit of a, a brain freeze there. <laughs> I um, said, started looking at what I was going to write next. So I wrote a book about a serial killer. It was Richard Biegenwald. And so that, that kind of put me down the true crime genre. And the Sidney Riso case, I, I knew of it. As a trooper, had no involvement in it. However, I started using that case, that investigation, and the events that unfolded as a case study for uh, training the my, my clients on what to look for. There are there are methods of operation, if you will, that that these bad guys prey upon. So, what there's certain things that people do that make themselves a target to be a victim, and then. There's also a method of operation that these these predators uh, do that if we are trained on it and we watch and we observe, 
uh, for example, in this case, kidnappers. Kid- kidnapping is a, is a process that, that takes some time, takes some planning, uh, takes some surveillance, uh, and then you know, counter surveillance as well in terms of going going back and and so while that's taking place, it creates opportunity for someone who is a potential victim to, if they were a little bit more situationally aware, to pay attention and maybe spot that that person. And the more I really looked into this case, I realized, you know, there's a human story to this as well. Sidney Riso was a, was a yeah, he was a powerful man with Exxon, but he was also a family man. Had a wife and kids. And uh, so there was really a, a touching story to this that I said, wow, um, probably needs to be told. He needs to be recognized for his, good, his goodness that he did, Sidney Riso. So I... I, I in the narrative, I, I construct who he was and um, how he was, his whole life was taking in a, in, a, in a moment at the foot of his driveway. And uh, another interesting part of this is that the kidnappers were a husband and wife team. He was an ex-cop from Hillside, New Jersey. Arthur Seal is his name. Retired, got on, on the job injury, left on a disability. Started working for Exxon, worked his way up, became a security manager uh, in a very trusted position. Uh, and his wife was a school teacher and um, very good looking couple, uh, both blonde hair, blue eyed. Um, very, you know, uh, on the surface, you would not think that they were capable of doing such a horrendous crime that they did. And it, what they did to Riso was, was horrible. So it was a really compelling story that I said, you know what, I'm going to. Put pen to paper, if you want, and write about it. And and so when when you think about the methodology that kidnappers follow, what was the mistake? I, I don't want to call it a mistake. God rest his soul, Mister Riso. But what did he do that made him uh, fall to 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 the prey of these kidnappers? He, although he was a very powerful individual at Exxon, he was not really first on the list. They had they had really hired a few other executives. So, again, it's the surveillance part. They went when they put a list together of the of, of the individuals that were potential targets. They found that Sidney Riesel was probably the easiest one to abduct, and that was because he was very systematic in what he did. He rose every morning at the same time. The light would go on up on the upstairs. Bedroom. His wife would come downstairs, turn on the kitchen light. She'd make breakfast for him every morning. They'd have breakfast at the table. Uh, like clockwork, he'd leave at, at a certain time. Uh, leave his his uh, garage oh, garage door would open up. He'd drive down his long driveway, and give or take a foot or two, he would uh, open up uh, position his car. So all he had to do was open up his door to grab his morning newspaper. He loved reading the newspaper and drive to work, taking the same route every day. He also refused to take. Uh, a limo, although his position would have dictated that he could have had a limo driver, which is a you know, former police officer, drive him every day. He was a down-to-earth individual, so he liked to drive himself to work. He drove a Volkswagen. He did not drive a, a real fancy car. He was a down-to-earth individual, but made himself more uh, likely to be a target. And so that's what they that's what they uh, they found. They identified him as a target. And the newspaper plays an interesting role. I, I when I do my training, I always say that's the baseline. That's the ordinary in this in this man's life, and it should be. We should kind of understand that as individuals. And he lived there for twenty something years. From time to time, that newspaper was was overthrown. 
if he would have just paid attention to that and said, you know what, it's, it's not normal, he would have realized, oh, it was nothing. He would have spent 20 years getting good at that. So the kidnappers moved his newspaper. Kicked it. They were doing uh, vehicle surveillance, and she was actually jogging by the house. And that's what they identified, that they were going to kick the newspaper, cause him to get out of his car, and then abduct him at the foot of his driveway. Wow. And so if you would have just, a simple thing like paying attention to when the newspaper's overthrown, for 20 years it was nothing. But if he would have practiced and observed, day of, he would have realized there was an idling van next to his, his, his mailbox and his newspaper with two individuals in it. And... Okay, so here we have a retired police officer who was working at Exxon as a security manager with his school teacher wife. You would never think that those two individuals with those two backgrounds would commit a, a kidnapping. What was their motivation? He worked at Exxon for a number of years. At the time of the kidnapping, he was not an employee. He had left. He um, they were consolidating. There was some movement going around. He was problematic at Exxon. He was problematic as a police officer as well, even though his father was the deputy chief of Hillside. And so even though he got a very lucrative uh, severance package, he held some resentment uh, towards the company. He moved to Hilton Head, North Carolina, to start a business. They had, they had made some considerable amount of money in, the, in their property, and the severance package, and they really went down to Hilton Head thinking that they were going to be entre- entrepreneurs and open up. It was at a bad time. The economy was, was going down. It's probably the reason the people that they bought the storefront from were selling it. When they fell upon hard times, that anger, that inner resentment that they had for Exxon really started to uh, multiply and compound, and that's when they plotted that they were going to get their retribution and uh, get on good financial standing. And they, li- they lived above their means um, as well, and I illustrate that in the book. And they just they really like to put on Now, who pretense. is the publisher of your book? The publisher is the <laughs> History Press. It's a publishing company in um, Charleston, South Carolina. And, of course, the book can be purchased Amazon.com. Amazon, mm-hmm. Barnes & Noble Online. You can go to your local uh, bookstore or Barnes & Noble, and it, it can be purchased there as well. And um, it was just recently published, correct? Yes, came out uh, the last week of February. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. And are you doing readings anywhere at any of the... I do. I have a couple mm-hmm. um, I have a couple book signings and presentations uh, coming up uh, at Barnes & Noble. One's in Homedale. Mm-hmm in May, and then there's another one in Springfield at Barnes & Noble, and I believe that one's in April. Okay. So I do have, I have a website if people want to yes. look at that. It's www.johnee.org, that's O-R-O-U-R-K-E.com, without the apostrophe, and there'll be information on there as well. And I also have Instagram and, and Facebook for those that want to. Beautiful. And, um... Also, um, there is a bookstore here in Maplewood, New Jersey. I'm trying to. Th- I'm, I'm having a, a brain uh, lapse as well. Word, word, something. But um, they have a lot of um, authors. Look, oh, really? Yeah, in Maplewood. I have, have to look it up. I, my <laughs> publicist goes out, but it's a combination of, of what the, what they try to get, and then I I, I reach out to 
I reached out to you, yes. I believe. As, that's and, right. Yes. That's right. So it is a, it's a combination. I find that sometimes I'm more successful than a publishing company. <laughs> I know. I, know. <laughs> yeah. I, I hear that a lot. <laughs> you know, it, you speak for those people that out there that are writing and, and writers. You know, I did my research, and M. William Phelps is a true crime author and is a wonderful article that he wrote. And one of the things he said on there, and I learned, and I wish I w- would have learned it with my first two books, is you got to market yourself. Right. Don't rely on the publisher. <clears throat> uh, they do a good job, but my, my first book sold out in a, in a month and a half. And I realized that my, the phone calls that I was making, they, at first they were getting, getting right back to me. And then when a book was selling on its own, three or four days, a week later, so they step away from it. So you have to market on, on right. your own. You right. know, they, they get, they're happy with it. If you want to take it to the next level, you got to really, yeah, really, you got to do it. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so um, how, did, how did, unfortunately, it didn't turn out well for, for Mr. Riso. What, where did the kidnapping go wrong? They spent months planning uh, this kidnapping, but it went it went wrong is that they didn't have a contingency plan and they were cold and callous it's hard for me to wrap my mind around what they were thinking they put this man in a wooden box that that arthur seal constructed looked very much like a coffin three foot by six foot designed so there was not uh not allowed to move around in there they bound and gagged him they accidentally shot him which they didn't plan on uh, How did that happen? Well, as when they abducted him at the, at the foot of his driveway at gunpoint, he, uh, Arthur still jumped out of the, the van. She was driving it with a ski mask on. He was cooperating until he got to the, the open door of the van, and he realized this was like basically a coffin in the back that they were going to put him in. He then resisted. In that struggle, uh, he was beaten pretty bad and accidentally shot. Mm. He was put in there, and... Um, the minute they put him in there, they only took him out when they, they, they drove him to a storage facility in Hackettstown, New Jersey, uh, put him in the back of a storage shed, and uh, took him out once to uh, treat the, the bullet wound, gave him, uh, put some, poured some peroxide on it, gave him very little water, no food. They did not want him to um, urinate or defecate, so that's why they didn't give him anything. But he, you know, he was trapped in there. Uh, they had drilled some holes in it. It just wasn't enough oxygen for him. He was breathing his, his own carbon monoxide in. Couple that with, it was unseasonably warm weather. Mm-hmm. It was in spring. It was in April. April 29th is when he was abducted. So the outside temperatures were heating up to, to the low 80s. Inside that shed was, was going above 100. And then inside the box he was in, put that together and it was a uh, it's a ingredient for disaster and a, a healthy man wouldn't have been able to survive that right when he came back 12 hours later he was basically uh, from from the uh, uh, carbon monoxide poisoning really too weak to resist from there he had lost his opportunity to um to resist and um they just never treated him so it's kind of hard all the planning that they did they went into it and he Arthur Seal copied a, a kidnapping, and it was a successful kidnapping that happened overseas with, a, with an Exxon manager called Victor, Victor uh, Samuelson, who was kidnapped by an environmental extremist group. And that's where he got the idea. He, he, at first, he sent this cryptic communication saying that he was an, they were an environmental extremist group. And they were doing the communication with Exxon, 
their they, they asked for to get a cell phone, and at the time cell phones weren't right. common. Right. So they got a cell phone, and they were doing um, the communication via classified ads in a newspaper. Um, so there was some, and he got all that from what took place overseas. And when they returned Victor Samuelson, he, uh, they Exxon paid fourteen point five million to get him back, and he he got returned safely in a wooden box. And that's where Arthur Still got the idea from. However, Victor Samuelson wasn't kept in a wooden box the whole his whole time of his abduction. So uh, there's a lot of similarities in the case and what he was thinking and. On the surface, it, it was well plotted and well planned because mm-hmm. he had the FBI uh, agents thinking that they had an environmental extremist group that actually abducted the the um, international president. Um, but then, as time went on, the investigation expanded. The uh, behavioral science unit came in, and they did a uh, from some of the letters that came in, and uh, their profile was was dead on. They said it wasn't an uh, environmental extremist group, probably someone local, someone bent on greed. And because they didn't know this, but Arthur and Jackie Seal, that was his wife, they were both constructing these these ransom requests. So there was two different voicings, a masculine and a feminine, that they keyed in that there was probably two people, a male and a female, that are doing. So it's a pretty good uh, investigation that way and how they how they did it. And then um, then there was actually two ransom nights. The first ransom night actually took place hours after Art Seale had died. The, the, the FBI had acquired the $18.5 million that was requested. I don't know if I mentioned that prior, but they had requested $18.5 million, which makes sense. They, Exxon paid $14.5 for a manager. What would they pay for the international president? So... Um, the first ransom night, they actually, under the guise that they were operating, that they were Exxon executives, they were really the FBI undercover, had the $18.5 million in the car. And the reason it failed that night is simply because Jackie had a slight case of dyslexia, and she dialed the wrong number. So it, it left the FBI wondering what happened in the communications. They did not get a call where they, where, where they spotted because there were agents in the field. And it also left the kidnappers wondering what went wrong with Exxon. Why weren't they there? Because they didn't know that they dialed the wrong number. So uh, it's an interesting case. There's a lot of things that just like how, you know, how do you plot and plan something and yet make simple mistakes wow. like that. Ladies and gentlemen, we are here with Mr. John O'Rourke, who is the author of the Mystery Millions in Murder in North Jersey, the kidnap and killing of Sidney Riso, the Exxon International president. And so, as it turned out, they dyslexia caused the, the wife to dial the wrong number. Um, and then what happened after that? There was a long break in communications. What I illustrate in the book is now that... now. The FBI and the law enforcement officials had no idea what happened to Sidney Riso. Uh, when he was abducted at the foot of the driveway, I forgot to mention that in that haste, because they didn't anticipate that they would uh, struggle with ensue and shots would be fired, they were supposed to plant a ransom letter with his vehicle. But she panicked, and they did not. 
So he went missing. They had no idea why. And then it took a couple of days before that first letter came, and it was placed at the Livingston Mall on a telephone pole, um, mm. telling them that they need to put an ad in the in the paper to to initiate communications with the kidnappers, um, which is pretty. And I have that in the book. Some of the ads, actual pictures of the ads. It's you know international rare bird for sale. Uh, it's pretty. But when you read it, knowing that you can actually see that. There was cryptic communication going on. For the average person, they wouldn't wouldn't get that. Um, after the long break, the uh, the kidnappers re-institute uh, communication once again with the classified ads, uh, requiring the victim's wife to go on air and and you know make a make a request. From that, it took a while. It was 57 days before they actually made an arrest in this. It took a while, and then they had a second ransom night when they coordinated it. And um, that was an interesting thing, too, because they actually, it kind of reminds me of an old Starsky and Hutch. Remember that show? Oh, so, yes. Oh, you yes. remember the episode where Hutch is going from telephone, telephone booth to telephone booth, and he's got a certain time he's got to make it? Right. <clears throat> That's exactly what... The SEALs wanted the, uh, the Exxon executives to do. They, they were playing a cat and mouse game with them, uh, trying to, to, to send them in different directions, knowing that he knew that the FBI were involved to some extent, uh, conducting some counter-surveillance uh, on them, and trying to make it as difficult as they could to, mm-hmm. to, 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 not, not to spot them. But with the end game going from point to point, either cellular f- communications and or uh, phone booth communication, believe me, there was a lot of phone booths at the time, um, going from phone booth to phone booth, with the end goal is getting them to a train station. And they had requested mm-hmm. 10, believe it or not, 10 Eddie Bauer bags, specifically asked for Eddie Bauer. They were yuppies. They, 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 like I said before, their lifestyle, they, they dressed all preppy. They wanted Eddie Bauer bags, 10. And he had did the, uh, the math. The money fit into the bags. And his goal was to put them on a, uh, on a train with the 10 bags. And at each stop, they would drop off a bag. And in theory, they, the kidnappers would exhaust the FBI resources because mm-hmm. you're not going to just drop a bag with a few million dollars and just leave it there. But the end game is the last stop, he'd, get, he'd walk away with a few bags because they wouldn't have the resources to do it. So it was actually not a bad plan. And the FBI agents that I have obviously interviewed for the book and the local police as well, kind of say it was. It's just that he, I had one agent, Ed, Ed Peterson is his name, and he actually had said that, you know, they, 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 did, they could do everything, but they, uh, they can, you know, get the present, they can put it in a box, but they just couldn't wrap it. They just couldn't tie the bow. Wow. They just couldn't finish it. And if I understand correctly, uh, unfortunately, um, Mr. Riso died after three days. Yes, three or four days. I, uh, May 1st, I believe, is when he... Wow. Or 4th. May 4th, he died. And then the, the kidnappers returned the body, dropped it off. Uh, they buried him in the Pine Barrens off of Exit 58 off the Garden State Parkway. Oh. Yes. The night of when they were... When they were arrested, they they had the, the authorities had no idea where Sidney Riso was. They remained uh, 
silent, refused to cooperate. Somehow they got Jackie Seal through her mother to cooperate. He, she had asked to speak with her husband. And at first they were thinking about letting him do that, but then they realized, you know what, he's got some power over her. And quite frankly, if he would have just said, hey, don't say a word, we'll say we're just copycats. Wrong, yes. Criminal, yes. But we're not going to do time for murder and kidnapping. Um, he, he still might be buried in the, in the Pine Barrens, if, if, if that be the case. And I spoke with some mm-hmm. agents, and they, they agree that he probably would have never been found. They had some trace evidence that they got in some of these letters, uh, a hair from a dog and a uh, blonde hair from a female. But DNA was not what it is today. Right. So um, there's a pretty good chance if they, after they buried him, if they would have just said, you know what, let's cut our losses and just go, you know what, they wouldn't have got him. And then if they wouldn't have cooperated, if she would not have cooperated and testified on, uh, you know, against her husband. Wow. Yeah. So she actually testified against her, her, she did. her husband. Yeah. Wow. How much time did he get? He he got life in prison plus like 30-something years, mm-hmm. so he's never going to get out. She got, uh, I think she got 20 years, and she mm-hmm. got out after 18. She mm-hmm. has been out since 2010. Wow. Did a period of probation and is out. How's the family doing, um, Mr. Riso's family? <sighs> That's a sad story. Uh, it was a very traumatic experience for them, as you can imagine. So they mm-hmm. didn't wish to take part in this in this project. Mm-hmm. Um, Patricia mm-hmm. uh, passed away in 2011, but she lost. <clears throat> they when when or when um, Sydney Riso was alive, they had lost a son. Mm-hmm. Um, so she went through that, and then she lost another son after she lost her husband, and then she lost her son-in-law. It was it's unimaginable what what she went what she had to endure with her life, but um, it's it's a sad story across the board. And so, what advice would you give to our listeners who are wealthy, um, who could be targets? What what advice would you give them in regard to protecting themselves against someone who would want to do a a, a kidnap? The ordinary. It, understand what the ordinary is. I call it the baseline. What, what is normal in your life? Everyone has a different uh, um, set of, of norm, if you will. When you see some of these active shooter incidents, when, uh, when they come in after the fact, and uh, the, we, we used to call it the post-mortem, you come in, you, you look at the investigation. There's a lot of subtle signs that happen that people miss. You know, if it was, you know, John... Yeah, you know, he was always on time, and he started coming late. Then you speak with someone else, and they say, yeah, he was always clean-shaven, but then he started to become, uh, you know, uh, unshaven. And then someone say, yeah, he was always neat, but then he was, he was disheveled. The science is subtle. So, but the, what happens is it, it's so subtle, they don't, because they don't really have a handle on the ordinary. The ordinary for Sidney Riso, and it's a good thing for people to wrap their heads around, is that newspaper. Use that as, 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 a, as a, a starting point, if you will. That newspaper, give or take a foot or two, was there where he could open up the door and get it. From time to time, what I call is a disruption to your ordinary. It wasn't. Disruptions are not necessarily bad. 
me being here in the studio today to the, to the, to, to the workers is a disruption to their, to their norm. I'm not here to do bad. So disruption's not bad, but we need to start paying attention to them. Mm-hmm. So one day when it may be something that's problematic, when that newspaper is out of place and then let me look around, I spent 20 years looking, it's been nothing, and now today there's a white van idling by it with two people in it, and I'm the international president of Exxon. Maybe I should just get my newspaper on the way to work and see if they follow me. So it's that ordinary. Get, get an understanding for the ordinary mm-hmm. and be a little bit more situationally aware. And so um, what is next? Um, have you been approached to have this produced into um, a, a movie for uh, one of the uh, streaming channels? Or? I've had I have several podcasts uh, mm-hmm. reach out to me about mm-hmm. this book. Uh, the My other book was, seemed to get some interest. I have a local... An independent filmmaker mm-hmm. for the Thrill Killer book interested. I'm hoping that someone will think about it. But I'm a writer, so mm-hmm. I'm, uh, but someone has even asked me, to, uh, would I consider writing a screenplay um, uh, with regards to some of my books? So uh, I'm thinking about it. And I'm also researching my next project, and it's probably going to be a case that happened in Washington, D.C., where it was a home invasion, and a husband, a wife, and a 10-year-old kid was, was killed. Ironically, another case story that I use. So, um, but it's a good human story. Great. Well, I want to thank you for coming on the program. Believe it or not, um, our, our 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 time our, has come to a close. It went very Isn't fast. It? I appreciate you having me wow. here. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank our guest, Mr. John O'Rourke, who is the author of Mystery Millions and Murder in North Jersey: The Kidnap and Killing of Sydney Riso. Thank you for coming in. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, that wraps it up on this week with Darrell, Leadership with Darrell Gunter on WSOU 89.5 FM. Have a great weekend, but remember, leadership begins with you. WSOU 89.5 FM.